This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. How is the driver's licensing going? We, um, we just had our second event in Kaurau yesterday and had an absolutely phenomenal turnout. Uh, and I'm excited, actually. I feel like we're finally starting to make some progress. We're we're moving people along. It's such an exciting thing, and it's as we've talked about before. It is, it, it's so important, and we didn't realise that something as simple as a driver's license was such a a barrier and such an enabler. Yeah, and um, do you know this? An interesting thing happened a couple of years ago. The government said. Right, we're going to put a limit on all drivers' license. You can only hold your learner's license for 10 years and you're restricted for 10 years. And they made this rule, but they they didn't really tell many people, just people who listen to the news. And so a lot of people have now got an expired license and don't know that they can go and get a two-year extension. So I only just found that out today myself. So um, my mission at the moment is to try and get people who are on expired licenses extended so that we can keep them going along the graduated licensing system. Very exciting stuff. And is is making such a difference. And who are we introducing today? Today it is my great pleasure to introduce Brooke Tucker. Um, Brooke is studying a PhD, well, completing a PhD at the moment in Indigenous Archaeology of Fovo Strait, which is actually something that really fascinates me. So I am really excited to listen to what you're doing, Brooke. Uh, Brooke has uh, been living in Dunedin the last 25 or so years, uh, has a husband and four children who are active in Dunedin life. And welcome, Brooke. Thanks for sharing with us today. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Brooke. How has your bubble life been? Um, I I think overall very positive is the short answer to that. There were lots of challenges to uh, the lockdown last year, and um, but overall, uh, you know, we had a pretty good life, especially considering what could have been. Um, and we were in a fortunate position. Um that being in a bubble didn't cause too many, uh, you know, financial or um, social challenges for us that we couldn't get over. And we had some really good family time in a nutshell. Were you teaching from home? Um, I actually, this is something that was good for me with lockdown. I had deferred from my PhD over the summer holidays, you know, Christmas and New Year, and 
um, I also needed um, to defer to have an operation. And so when lockdown came, I was already on a pause and the university was fantastic in just extending that because obviously the labs closed. I couldn't have access to the equipment I needed at university. Uh, I was doing lots of hands-on practical work in the lab. And then I had four children who suddenly were at home and doing homeschooling and needing to use my computer when I wanted to do <laughs> research. And um, so, so um, the university, you know, was very helpful in just extending that. So I actually ended up being deferred for six months. Um, and apart from taking the stress off what would have been quite stressful trying to do um, postgrad research and homeschool for kids. It also gave me a chance to really recover from my operation, which I hadn't expected, but really appreciated in the end. So it was good. And was it all happily waiting for you when you came back to it? Yes. Yeah, it was really very exciting to get back into the labs. Initially, um, Everybody was really spaced out. Uh, the desks were all spaced out and equipment had to be sterilized. And um, But then it got back to even more normality. And it was great to be able to go back to the lab and talk to people face to face and, um, yeah, and get back to all my archaeological material because, of course, the community um, where I had excavated was, you know, really hanging out to, to be updated on the results of my excavation and and the analysis of my material. So it was really satisfying to be able to give them feedback on how my research was going. I suppose in a way you were lucky that it was already deferred because you would, presumably you'd packed it away in a way that yes. you could come back to. Because I imagine if you just like didn't come back to your desk tomorrow, it would be you'd come back to what is this stuff? <laughs> That's right. The other thing that I was really fortunate about too is that quite often when you start doing archaeological research, you do a long period of uh, like literature review and it takes you a while before you get to your field work. But I had started on a community project and I did all of my field work right from the get go in 2019. And then when 2020 fell apart, I was thought, oh, thank goodness I'd already done my excavation and it wasn't something hanging in the balance, you know, while I wondered would I be able to get there or actually my site had been threatened by coastal erosion so i would have been worrying will it still be there when i get back it was perfect timing really so why archaeology are we allowed to talk about indiana jones <laughs> for sure <laughs> in in fact i uh, get asked about that all the time i don't have the hat <laughs> <laughs> um i always loved archaeology and i think like a lot of people I got into it because even before I loved archaeology, I loved dinosaurs as a child. Um, I've, it's just always fascinated me the way people are different all over the world and through time, and yet they're the same. Um, you know, the, the underlying ways that human society operates, um, it, you know, it kind of calls to you no matter where it is and from what time period. So it's always fascinated me. History ancient history, archaeology. Yeah, I really love it. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have a Johnny Flynn, The Detectorists. Why this one? Um, I watched The Detectorists during lockdown. It was a series that I hadn't come across before and someone recommended it to me because it's about metal detectors in England who are fascinated by, you know, their 
their ancient heritage. And also it has that joy of discovering things and archeologists are on an eternal quest <laughs> um, that, that is never really satisfied. You're always um, looking for information and, and, and marveling about things. And we love the show and I really love the song and I spent the rest of the summer sorting through my material listening to this song thinking about how cool it was because it was beautiful but the words were actually um, very relevant for an archaeologist so yeah became a favourite. Will you search through the lonely earth for me Climb through the briar and bramble I'll be your treasure I felt the touch of the kings and the breath of the wind I need the call of all the songbirds They sang all the wrong words I'm waiting for you I'm waiting for you enjoyed the the dig about the oh, yes. digging out of that uh, was it Viking ship um, from Sutton Hoo mm. um, yeah in England yes I was very excited when I saw the, the trailer for that and, and uh, enjoyed watching that as well yeah so the indigenous archaeology of Vovo Strait how did that come about um uh, Almost by happy accident, I I ended up being asked to help supervise a re, another research project, an environmental, um, a biological conservationist, um, Johannes Fisher from Wellington University of Wellington. Um, he was doing a conservation project um, on diving petrels on Fennel Ho, which is an island off the northwest coast of um, Rakira, Stewart Island. And uh, there was a lot of um, very important um, archaeological and cultural heritage for Naitahu on that island. He was wanting to put nest boxes into the dunes to study the birds' biology. And I went along to supervise that. And I thought, wow, I have lived in Dunedin and studied archaeology and, and done a lot of local work on the east coast of Otago and in central Otago. And never knew how cool the the deep south was and how um 
how much archaeology and how complex um, history there was in that area. So I, I worked on the conservation project for a few years and, um, and thought, oh, this would be great to study further. I'd always kind of thought about doing a PhD and never really known what I could commit that much time and energy to and suddenly realized that there was this great material, you know, kind of in our backyard. And, and I was really interested in the region there. Fascinating sites, um, unexpectedly, you know, diverse. And um, the, the people down there are lovely and really enthusiastic that someone found their backyard interesting. So it was great. Much like the, the boat in, in England, how do you know where to dig? Um, in, in my case, uh, well, first of all, as an archaeologist, you, you only dig if you have to, because, um, even though it's fascinating when you dig, you are destroying something that you can never replace exactly the way it was. Uh, so although we're best known for excavating and we certainly enjoy it, uh, you don't do it lightly. It's a big undertaking. So. In this instance, though, I knew that this area would be good to excavate because I could see it eroding. Uh, it was in the bank of a creek and also fronted by the, the, the coast. So both the creek and the high tide were eating away at the site. The sand was slipping down and you could see the dark cultural material that where um, bones and charcoal and um, in some areas, artifacts like stone flakes or bits and pieces of ceramics and glass were showing. And this is actually a really big deal for New Zealand because so many of our really early sites where people first lived are right on the coast um, and they suffer a lot from erosion, particularly now we're finding with um, rising sea level. So it's a challenge for the whole country. Um, yeah, so I saw that the site was eroding and, and as I said, it came from an area that was really significant to Naitahu. There a lot of people today have ancestors that, um, that lived in that particular place. And so it needed to be dealt with um, in a way that captured the information and didn't just let it be destroyed and lost. So you you say a, a dark cultural layer. You you're literally like talking about a, a darker line in the in the soil and the sand. Yeah, I think um, when you look at the sand at a beach, you come across it's generally a natural looking color. I mean, you know, you you know what you expect to see from a beach, but often archaeological sites show um, either with a really thick layer of shell. Um, that's you know packed in there like a layer in a sandwich, or um, you suddenly notice that there's a, a straight line going along the side of a bank or in a dune, and the soil is very dark grey or dark brown or black. Um, usually, what we call a cultural layer has been coloured by either charcoal from a fire or the grease um, and grime from you know, decomposing uh, animal remains from, say, a rubbish heap. Um, yeah, usually anywhere there's been people living, it changes the colour of the soil and that shows against what's naturally there. And that's what we call um, stratigraphic layers, which are literally like the layers in a sandwich, you know, with their 
your bread and your cheese and your ham and whatever in, in a sand dune, you'll have the natural layer and then you might have shell or bone, a line of charcoal, some clean sand again when the wind blows and people have moved away for a time and then it gets repeated. So. And then you, what, you bag that up and you take it back to the lab and I imagine that's when the work starts. <laughs> yes, well, um, you usually do a very careful excavation, which is when you, you, you do the dig and you remove material in a really controlled way so that, like a sandwich, you can tell what order you've taken things out in um, because the, the, place, the placement of the material shows how they relate to each other and what it means. So someone was making a fire or they were building and digging a post hole. Um, you lose all of that information if it all gets scrambled up. Um, so you have to dig really slowly and carefully and make lots of records um, so that when you're in the lab and you're looking at all your stuff and sorting through thousands of pieces of bone and finding out what it belongs to, you can also say, oh, that's interesting. I've got a huge number of fish scales and they all come from the same part of the site. So somebody was scaling a barracuda before they cooked it or um, oh, that's interesting. There's a lot of bird bone from this area, but it's all wings. So somebody has removed the wings from a bird, perhaps when they're collecting the feathers from it for clothing, or perhaps from when they're preparing the bird in a certain way, maybe for um, preserving it and putting it in kelp bags. Or if everything's there, they just cooked it and ate it all in one go kind of thing and tossed all the bits away. So, yeah. So you have to, I imagine, be have some expertise in recognizing that this bit of bone is not just any random bit of bone it's a particular thing but also then some i'm going to steal mawira's question and say some imagination in being able to work up from that to what's going on i think so um i guess there's a lot of in that question the, the first part of it is yeah archaeologists do specialize um but archaeology one of the things that appeals to it to me about it is that in archaeology you can specialize in a lot of different things you can become an archaeologist and go many different ways and specialize in pottery or specialize in stone tools or specialize in identifying faunal material which is the animals and the shellfish um but the other thing is that archaeologists are very good archaeologists are very multidisciplinary so you kind of um, gather in the information from lots of different people. You, you're not the be-all and end-all of everything and that's particularly um, the case when you're interpreting um, material. Well, I find for me with Indigenous archaeology, you, you always learn from uh, the people who live in the area or who's whose ancestors were at the site, um, and also constantly finding out things from environmental scientists where you think, oh, that explains why I've seen this. Now I understand what's happening. Um, and then the second part of your question with the imagination, <laughs> um, of course, we like to claim that our interpretations are very firmly grounded in fact, but yes, um, archeology span is a social science. It's a humanities discipline. Um, it's all about, the social behavior of people and their their purposes and their their 
beliefs and their actions and their social interactions um, and there's you can't take the humanity out of that there is a lot of interpretation and discussion about what things mean and how you can justify why you think people behave in that way or why you're suggesting that this might have happened yeah bubble sprite of the forest of orakunui Dunedin's favorite goddess tahu mackenzie Kia ora koutou, nā mihi arohanu kia koutou ko tahohau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope that wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day, who you are. A triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique, and here making things better. Thank you. So as we know, we've been through so many shifts and changes together over the last more than a year, and these five minutes together have helped me so much throughout this time. So thank you, Sam, whole Blown Bubbles team for having me, and thank you all. I'm so grateful that we can share this space together. So for me, having had all this time as we have moving through so many different states of being, seeing, doing, feeling, and now finding ourselves in a very fortunate position, this unparalleled freedom, able to frolic about, the trans-Tasman bubble, all these things, it is with a great sense of relief, of course, and gratitude that we can continue to experience such a beautiful life together here in Aotearoa, New Zealand and of course we need to do our best to support those around the world who are having a hard time and I'm grateful to be able to be part of this show and for me more and more I see us as the great tool users and the great tool creators as a species and of course everything in our lives and our life itself can be conceptualized as a tool reframed as a tool and I think for all of us in our lives we are constantly co-evolving with all life in an infinite web but we are also co-evolving with different aspects of ourselves and in finding the right tools at different times I feel that we can best support ourselves and each other. And for me, obviously, I've had a lot of changes in my own life over the last few months and finding the right tools to support myself and feel as best as I can and the best aspects of myself to come forward has been a new challenge and has been really interesting. And I'm feeling now that I have a better grasp on it but I think for all of us we're learning all the time different ways to care for ourselves and each other <clears throat> I know for me that having moved through many different phases of being and having different focuses for my energy I haven't been able to maintain the same level of dedication to very strict health regime I've needed to be somewhat self-indulgent 
over the last several months and that has been helpful for me. I'm deciding that from the 1st of May my health regime will recommence. It may have a different form but that focus will be there. So I really hope that for you you're finding ways to put structures in place, find the tools for you that really help you and this is meaning that those aspects of you that you want to nurture, those aspects of you that you want to come forward, those parts of you that you really want to celebrate are really well supported and are there for you. <clears throat> I know for me that I just feel so grateful that despite all these ups and downs and despite all these somewhat gruelling learning experiences, I am learning and I think this is true for all of us, we're constantly learning. This is another thing about us as a species and I'm really grateful for that opportunity, always. So I really hope that for you, you can really enjoy this time. I hope that for you, you're seeing those opportunities to learn and grow and use different tools in different ways to help yourself and those you love. And I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Brooke Tucker. Brooke, I'm doing a, a bit of um, fictional ethnography at the moment and absolutely loving it. And it strikes me that archaeology would be a really good space for that. Do you find yourself imagining the stories of the people that you're finding out about as you're digging? Um. I think that that's, it is inevitable. Actually, I just learned the other day that there, there's a whole, there was a whole kind of theme um, in archaeology at one stage of the imagined past and the imagined narrative. And we were having a big, my colleague and I were having a discussion about how effective that could be and where the dangers were in straying too far from the, the information. And, and it is, as a social science, you also have to always be aware of yourself as a researcher and your own ideas and cultural biases or historical background and how that influences what you're interpreting from the hard material that you've recovered. But certainly for me as a, as a teenager growing up, I loved... Um, not just historical fiction, but prehistoric fiction where people had created stories from ancient Britain or um, or Africa or, you know, places with very deep history, um, deep pasts, um, trying to imagine what life would be like. And that really was what drew me to archaeology in the first place, looking at the remains that people had left behind, something broken or even perhaps the skeleton of someone. Um, and just trying to imagine what life was like for that person. So, yes, um, I agree with you. It, it, and you can certainly um, be fascinated by trying to understand what people might have felt or what the circumstances, how, how that would have affected them. I, I, my excavation, because part of the site I was working on had a historical layer, and I was working on that site with 
someone whose ancestors had lived in that place and that was very important for them you know they literally had a family connection to that site and for me even though i didn't have that working with the person who did have that family connection i could look around the area and think my goodness you know his ancestors were here and sat here or worked here or ate food here and um yeah that was a very cool feeling it was it was a, a good experience because um you know in some ways the past is distant from us at the same time that it's quite close so you feel it differently at sometimes than others yeah you sometimes see people there's there's several memes of it of some strange device or some strange behavior and the 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 punchline is i'm doing this just to confuse the future archaeologists <laughs> yeah maybe not in terms of a literal layer but do you think that we'll see evidence of the pandemic in the in the archaeology of the future is, is it having such a profound impact on what we do that we'll we'll be able to see it that's an interesting question i guess maybe in my immediate thought is perhaps in two ways one would be uh, oh the first thing i thought of is just the the disposal um you know the the waste problem with the ppe and the masks um i think you know suddenly <laughs> there would be a massive explosion of that type of material um but then it's interesting because today we tend to bundle all our rubbish off and take it off to garbage dumps um whereas perhaps you know centuries ago you could more easily see the way people lived because their their rubbish tip you know their personal midden was in their own backyard kind of thing um yeah so that's an interesting question one thing i noticed about the rubbish that we leave behind is that in some ways supermarkets had been moving towards less plastic and more you know pick your own or paper bags and when the pandemic you know when we went into lockdown everything went back into plastic bags because they were trying to move us quickly through the grocery section and you know so everything was packaged up in bags again so you could just pick up a bag of apples and go instead of choosing your own I found that a little bit frustrating, not as an archaeologist, but, you know, as a mother of a large family, you try and shop and reduce your plastic and then suddenly you're back to everything being plastic packaged again. So, yeah, that's not particularly archaeological, but that is what I noticed. <laughs> well, OK, so what have you noticed in a wider sense? We've seen lots of change over the, the last year, societal change. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Um, I guess maybe, well, I have noticed down in Dunedin anyway, um, quite a, you know, there was, there was certainly a real appreciation of the environment, um, and people's personal environments Their you know, their backyard space and their neighborhoods became very important to them because they, people spent more time in them, which was fantastic and lovely in some ways, um, to finally appreciate your own home. Um, and I think that that will stay. 
day, particularly because we have, you know, our, our bubble is great and as big as our country and now as big as Australia, but people are still very, you know, much more focused on New Zealand um, because they can't go anywhere else. So I do hope that the appreciation of our environment will continue. The other thing that I noticed that perhaps didn't stick around so much was, you know, we all loved, well, a, you know, a lot of people who perhaps weren't under stress, um, you know, really appreciated being able to have things, being able to cut down on our busy schedules and have things kind of be forcibly taken <laughs> off us and and be slowed down a bit. Certainly as a mother of lots of children, I know that, I think secretly everybody breathed a sigh of relief that all the extracurricular things just stopped for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure most parents will tell you that actually first on your list, you're a taxi driver. Um, and that definitely picked up again really quickly. I think a lot of people said, oh, this is great. You know, we've all slowed down. Um, isn't it fantastic to see what's really important and what we can do without? And and a lot of those things were, you know, started, the wheel started up again. Um, and I guess now maybe the takeaway is, you know, sometimes we're doing just as much, but we appreciate it more um, because we couldn't do it for a while. Yes, it was almost a, a year ago that we were noticing this is quite nice. We quite like the slowing down. And this lockdown is going to come to an end eventually. Do you think we'll manage to hang on to this this moment of slowness, this this opportunity for a reset? And we didn't. No, that that is right. It, um, but I think um, we still appreciate being together more now afterwards, even though it, our lockdown was relatively short, um, and we have been back to relative normal for for a long time um I, i'm thinking a year ago it was it, it's currently it's new zealand um archaeology week and so a year ago in lockdown we were having archaeology week and it was all online and and everybody was um trying to connect with communities that normally you can visit you know and trying to talk about the physical environment that normally you're out in and uh, and then this year and in archaeology week we're all really you know it's it was really exciting i was on stewart island yesterday um you know able to talk to communities that i was working in and be there face to face and um just really enjoy you know being able to relate to people physically as as well as digitally so yeah we're busy again but i think we appreciate it you described your project earlier as a community project and you, you just said you're being you are managing to get back. What have you been able to tell them? Uh, well, yesterday uh, when I was giving a presentation, because I I'm not finished my analysis, but because I have made a lot of progress through my lab analysis, um, I could tell the community the types of information that are, that is coming out because it's often you know people you say to the people you're working with oh your history is fascinating there's so much stuff here but having the time to be able to say well look these are the types of stone tools i'm finding this is where the stone is coming from um, which shows that um, early maori were had a social interaction network 
that could trade stone from the top of the country to the bottom or um wow there's so much fishbone in the site but now i can say most of it is barracuda and um there was a lot of cod but also i just found the jawbone of a conger eel you know and and to give people the detail um they they really you know it's it's very satisfying and it it gives people a, a real connection they are already have their primary connection they know the place is important they know it's part of their family but you know just the day-to-day -day details of what people were doing there you know really um makes it accessible in a different way um, and I, that's what archaeology is about really it's not the ultimate answer or it's not the ultimate proof of what happened in the past but it's just a different type of information that you can combine with um with oral tradition or with written record or with environmental data it just makes the picture rounder so you were hedging about whether or not it was imagination but it does sound like it's storytelling <laughs> well yes um i wouldn't dispute that um and especially when you're communicating information uh, i mean the best communicators are storytellers um of course we're very sensitive about it though because um it's easy to tell someone a story that's misleading or incorrect or um so an archaeologist um they don't want their information misused or um you know or misrepresented so yeah we we are also uh, sensitive to the storytelling um but it's true that you uh you kind of learn about an inverted pyramid which is kind of a visible picture of you know your your data at the bottom a tiny point uh, and then the theory and the discussion and the information that you build up from that kind of grows and expands um in some ways it's based on very small things but they're very carefully thought out um and identified things they're not just made up out of nothing yeah yeah so if you you said like those stone tools that that come from somewhere else in the country you can build up from that to say well there must have been a way of that getting here yes definitely yeah you you are creating a story or a picture of the past that is bigger than the small things that you're holding in your hand so yes you can look at stone tools and say in my case wow there's there's obsidian there's argillite there's basalt there's quartz none of these things are found on this island they were all brought here um, and some of them were brought from quite some distance so then you need to try and figure out other ways of deciding well did people bring them from those places themselves or did they pass them down the line and trade and exchange and and that's why in archaeology it's never enough just to look at one site you you need your idea is that you're contributing information that um, accumulates for the whole country, you know, to give you a big picture. Uh, yeah. Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Lauren Daigle. You say, why this? Um, it's fairly important part of my identity too, I guess. Um, I do have 
faith that I think Lauren Daigle represents well in this song. But also I identify um, as an outsider in New Zealand. Uh, I came over from Australia um, to study at university and never left. Um, as an outsider to New Zealand and also someone who does spend a lot of time working on Maori sites, uh, I'm very aware that it's not my past, it's not my culture. And sometimes that can give you quite a feeling of insecurity. You are very concerned that you want to work well with your community, that you want to do things that are beneficial for them, that you want to do the best possible job you can of communicating information in a way that is helpful for them. Um, yes, yeah, so I think this song sometimes addresses some of my um, cult cultural or national insecurities as well. <laughs> uh, mind you, I have had a very good life as an Australian living in New Zealand, so I'm not complaining, but um, I do tend to hide whenever the rugby comes on. <laughs> I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough Every single lie that tells me I will never measure Just the sum of every high and every low Remind me once again just who I am Because I need to know Now I'm laying it at your 
I have some questions to end the show with and not very much time, so we shall have to wriggle through them. What is the biggest success you've had in the last year or so? Um, oh, that's a really tough one. I guess I think um, getting back into life after being um, shut away with my family. Um, yeah, we did really love and it was a valuable time for us um but that first week of getting back into real activities and having to plan again because you were actually going outside was quite a big deal so i i think um and maybe for new zealand too um you know we all did that and kind of got back to normal and that was a big deal so yeah and i and i got back to studying after having six months off and that was good for my brain and quite hard work as well so i guess that would be a success yep we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in the team. What's your superpower? Motherhood, I think, because I am an archaeologist, but I'm also a mother. And, um, yeah, that's probably my priority. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? For what's important to me, yes, but uh, I'll qualify that in saying I don't necessarily think an activist is somebody who walks down the street holding a sign, but I am adamant in practicing what is important to me and in everyday things that make a difference, so yes. We've had quite a lot of people say something like that, say, yes, I'm, I, it's about making a difference, but I'm not a Greenpeace activist. And then we had the head of policy for Greenpeace on, and he said, yeah, but I'm not a Greenpeace activist. Yes, you are. <laughs> so what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, gee, that's another really hard one. Um, oh, prime, I guess, practically speaking, uh, my family, I... Uh, when I got married, I went from being one person to two people, I think. And when I had children, 
suddenly I we had been two people and now we are six and I think life just grows like that and you become more and more connected to more and more people um, but the practicality is that the last seven years my my 17 years my kids have been the ones that get me out of bed every morning and you can't <laughs> hide from them so. <laughs> yeah. so what's the biggest challenge or opportunity you're looking forward to in the next year or so Finishing my PhD will be a big challenge, um, mostly in terms of time management because uh, I have a family and um, I decided when I w did my PhD that it wouldn't be at the expense of my family. My PhD would be additional to what I was already doing. So the time uh, management and finding the time is my biggest challenge. And I'll be so happy when, when I finish, when I get it done, it, it will be a really big achievement. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Uh, wow. Um, that's really general. So I don't know. I think maybe that everybody's important. I mean, that's another thing I like about archaeology is that you are dealing with unknown individuals in the past, but every single individual is important and leaves a mark on the world. So um, it's good to value yourself and realize that you are important and you are significant. Thank you for that. Moira. Brooke, it's very clear to me listening to you talking tonight that you have a tremendous amount of respect for the past, for the people, for their lives, for the stories that you uncover. And I thank you for that. And Thank you for helping us to get that bit of insight into our people that came before us because as Māori, it's really important to us that whakapapa is everything and um, and you're helping us to understand those people that we came from in, in, that, in that really physical way. So thank you. Thank you very much for what you do. Thanks. That's, that's really nice. That's great. Thank you very much for joining us. But no one's ever seen us driving our Econoline And no one's ever heard of our band We're the Mesopotamians Sargon Some themes are too good to go out to just one song That is They Might Be Giants, the Mesopotamians This though is the B-52s, Mesopotamia something a bit louder although with questionable ethics here is no fx dig
sticking with the dig theme Nick Cave of the Bad Seeds Dig Lazarus Dig Francisco, L.A., I don't know, but Larry grew increasingly neurotic and obscene. I mean, he, he never asked to be raised up from a tomb. I mean, no one ever actually asked him to forsake his dreams. Back to actual archaeology with Jack Jackson, Traffic in the Sky. Puzzle pieces in the ground. No one ever seems to be digging Instead they're looking up towards the heavens With their eyes on the heavens mm-hmm. The shadows on the way to the heavens mm-hmm. It's enough to make me cry That don't seem like it will make it feel better The answers could be found We could learn from digging down But no one ever seems to... But only because I was brought up on Bodmin Moor On the coast of North Cornwall Let's go out to Gruff Reese with the Court of King Arthur. No cars, I'm digging for treasure I'm digging deep for the Carter King of the You've 
You've been listening to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. I'm Samuel Ray in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and we forgot to ask where she is in Dunedin, but in Dunedin, Brooke Tucker. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.